Hi, welcome to the Canola Watch podcast. My name is Jay Wetter. This is the fifth of five podcasts recorded at Canola Palooza this year. The topic is stand establishment. My co-host is Sean Haney with realagriculture.com. Sean also did all the recording for the podcasts. Sean will introduce himself shortly. And our guests are... I'm Murray Hartman with Alberta Agriculture, the oilseed extension specialist. Rob Golden with the University of Manitoba, weed science and agronomy. Uh, Darren Feitzma from Pinoka, Alberta. Been uh, planting canola for the last nine years with a vacuum planter. And also Sean Haney from Real Agriculture and Real Ag Radio. Let's get right into it. Here is our podcast on canola stand establishment recorded live at Canola Palooza. All right, Murray, we're going to start with you. Over the years, our targets for canola have kind of come down. Uh, So now we're sitting at an ideal target of five to eight living plants per square foot. Can you give us the background, the science behind that recommendation? Yeah, so um, in the past, you know, the recommendations were anywhere from 10 to 17 plants per square foot, you know, um, and that was based on obviously some data in the past, um, but what has changed is that the type of canola we grow has changed. You know, so some of that data was with Polish canola, small seed, you know, et cetera, a little bit different emergence, non-herbicide, tolerant, um, hybrids, not in um, conventional tillage or residue covered fields. So there are a lot of those situations that, that old data, it doesn't apply to current current systems and then one of the other really big factors was that the cost of seed back then was you know less than a dollar a pound in the in the 80s which means your cost of seeding an acre of canola was like less than five bucks right and the value of canola was five bucks a bushel or a little bit better in some of that time period so the cost of the seed relative to the cost of the product was insignificant so we weren't really ever worried about the overseeding in the respect of well that was too much money overseeding the cost logic or disease problems but not for cost right so it was always easy then to err on the high side of trying to achieve almost maximum yield and good weed competitiveness because we didn't have good herbicides right and, and Rob will talk about that so all of that kind of made us err on the on the high side of trying to achieve you know near near maximum yields and then all these things changed and the price of seed, et cetera, and all of it, and with hybrids. And then the question came in, well, do hybrids respond differently than open pollinated? And so then I started breaking out the data, comparing them, and it looked like there was a difference initially. And then I, but we were always weak on the low end of plant densities and experiments because we were never really that interested in anything less than four or five plants per square foot. So we had very little data. And so always tried to encourage research applications, make sure you have, you know, one plant per square foot, two plants per square foot in treatments, and then we'll be able to determine, right? And um, so, that, and then the costs, the relative costs we went, you know, um, to now where hybrid seed is such a big expense compared to the price increase in canola. So almost now it's an, an economic decision you have to consider. You can't just spend until you get you know maximum yield. So those, and, and so when you started getting all the data that came, came out that with low plant population data and hybrids and herbicide tolerant and current farming systems, then we looked at the data. So yeah, that yield shoulder where the yield starts to decline is a little bit lower plant population in the past. 
so the physical relationship changed, but also the economic relationship changed. So that all meant that if you're really targeting average seed size and average emergence, that the economic part you should be targeting is in that five to eight, you know, um, stage versus what we were before. So we basically have almost cut it in half over time. Darren, let's get your perspective. So uh, if, thinking of that five to eight plants per square foot range, where, what do you aim for? Uh, well, we, we try to seed about five to six. And then by the time harvest comes around, we're probably down to like three or four. So, yeah. With, with your planter, I mean, one of the things that I've heard about planters is that because the seed placement is so precise that maybe your survival rate is better. So if you're, if you're targeting or if you're seeding five to six, are you, are you getting basically five? Uh, well, we're most of the season we are, but yeah, if you have cutworms or flea beetles or, or drying out on hilltops and stuff, so there we're seeing less. Um, our germination is in the 90s to high 90s, so usually if we're planting five or six, we'll probably get that. But yeah. with the canola calculator, uh, we can calculate your your seeding rate. Which it, canolacalculator.ca if anyone wants to try it out. But you, you enter your seed size, your, your seeding rate, um, and your, seed, your estimated seed survival, and it'll give you kind of your, the, plant, the stand that you can expect to have. So I think typically we're in, in around the 60% range for survival, so when you have 90, uh, you, you can, you're almost at a one-to-one -one seed to living plant ratio, which sure helps with the economics. Is that, was that the big reason for using the planter for you guys? Yeah, and stepping, like on the, on the 5,000, we were on a 5,000 drill and at the end of the season, then you're, when the weather's turning bad, you start speeding up. Like everybody says they don't, but I don't believe it. But <laughs> so what happens is like, when the window gets smaller and you're getting to the end of May, guys speed up and, and you're getting more stepping and having other issues. And with a planter, you can you can go as fast as you want and it seems like it's still still planting like in over the 90s, right? If you go a nine mile an hour, you're still getting over 90%, which, but with, you're still doing better than an air drill, right? At 90%, so. We had a short pause here while the train, which was too loud for recording, went by. Marie restarts the conversation on economics. So, so one of the things from doing this economic analysis of the, the, the yield increases and stuff from you know, different plant densities is that the, the higher percent emergence you're getting, so if you're 80% versus 60%, that means your cost per plant established is less. And actually then that, that um, allows for a higher economic density. And lots of people think, oh, the better emergence I get, I can do a, a lower plant stand. And actually it's the opposite. Instead of say five or six, you should be up at eight plants per square foot if you get a very high emergence because the cost per plant is very small and you're getting, you still get a yield benefit. So that's, that's kind of a really you know, different concept. But the reverse is, is that if you get a very low emergence, your plant count that your target is going to be lower, but your actually seeding rate is still going to be quite high because your emergence is really low. And that's also counter to the farmers. They think, oh, I'm going to get poor emergence. I'm going to put more seed in the ground. And they're just 
paying more seed not to come up, right? Yeah. So there's there's some things that are kind of established mentality that it's hard for them to you know uh, think about it. Rob, I want to get into a conversation with you about um, secondary dormancy. But before we get there, is, do you want to jump in on any comment on what we've heard so far? No, I think I, 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 as I, I do agree to a large extent of what uh, these guys are saying. And, and certainly the hybrids uh, that we're dealing with these days, they perform differently than some of the older plants. Um, closer? Okay. Um, so I, I, I can't really disagree. The only thing, the, the word of caution I would probably throw out is... Um, that when we get to too low a plant stance, then uh, the, uh, the the chance of any sort of call it hazard in science, but be it insects, diseases, weeds, whatever biological um, um, hazard comes along, uh, the the stand is very uh, are not able to recover from that or, or deal with that biological stress, which then forces us and they're the producers to uh, rely very more heavily on pesticides. Um, having said that, you know, the beauty of canola is, is it can compensate quite nicely, even at these quite relatively low uh, plant stand densities. Um, but also looking at stand establishment and, and thinking a bit about, uh, we're doing some research right now with Steve Shirtliff, um, looking at row spacing and various densities of, of, of canola. And we've got one year under our belt, and that was last year, which wasn't a great canola year for that, for that study because it was pretty dry in the spring. And when I look at the, uh, the, our data, uh, what, what I find really striking is, and we didn't plant it with the planter, so you know, our emergence isn't at 90%, which is, I think is a big piece in this whole puzzle of, of reducing plant densities. Getting that one for one is critical, because otherwise I think we get into trouble really, really quickly. Um, but looking at, this, at, at, at just the, the, the spatial variation in canola over the size of an experimental plot area, which isn't a very big area, it's like 50 by 60 meters, the same treatment planted with the same drill from one rep to the next performs completely differently. Um, completely different level of emergence, completely different yield level, very unpredictable, um, which is I think a big piece of this puzzle that we really need to solve when we start pushing towards wanting the one for one and getting away with these low plant densities because we do we do. Uh, we we can run into trouble pretty quickly if we're if we're working right at that edge. Mm. So I, I agree with Murray that you know if we get one for one or close to one for one, it's cheaper for each plant and it's more economical to have a couple of extra plants there just as insurance. Um, you mentioned the dry conditions last year. Obviously, we a lot of the prairies faced pretty dry conditions through the stand establishment weeks and and months. This year, some still are dry. <laughs> Which brings me to this conversation about the secondary dormancy. So I was wondering if, if you've got canola seed just sitting in dust, right. um, is that a secondary dormancy situation or is it just just sitting there waiting? <laughs> can you can you explain what might be going on there? Yeah, I'll, I'll elaborate a bit on that. Um, you know, I've, I've studied secondary dormancy in canola for 20 years now, so I kind of know my way around that a little bit. Um, in the spring, so, so we can induce canola Brascanapus into a secondary dormancy, and the conditions that really work best to induce it into a dormancy, and, and by dormancy we mean that the seed uh, enters a condition where if it sees the right amount of moisture, uh, temperatures, and all the rest of it, it refuses to germinate, even under the best of conditions. Um, it can go into that uh, dormancy, but what, it, what, it, what, it, what is required is, is very stable, uniform soil temperatures, originally around the 20 degree mark, which seems spring-like, 
um, and, uh, and, and moisture stress where the soil moisture level is very close to the permanent wilting point. So you, to get the seed to go into dormancy, they have to be uh, able to take up a little bit of water, but then the seed recognizes, hey, it's not enough water to germinate, I better change my physiology, and it switches over. And without that, you, you don't get dormancy development, and it takes a long time. It takes four weeks in the lab to, to induce high levels of dormancy. So is that what's happening in the spring when we seed canola at half an inch deep and the soil is bone dry? Probably not. I would, I would think that that is what's, what's referred to as a quiescent state, where the seed just doesn't have the conditions to germinate. And, uh, and that is, water is missing. You know, the temperature is probably fine in that dust layer, but there's just not enough water. And if it doesn't have enough water to even get started, it just can't go into dormancy. Um, what's happening to those seeds? Um, going back, thinking back about an old study I did way back when, where we looked at the seed bank close to the surface, we noticed that uh, the canola seeds that were, sure, they were from the previous, uh, the previous season, uh, established the last, last fall, they weren't planted that spring, but, but a lot of those seeds didn't emerge in the spring, it was a very dry year in Saskatoon that year, and, uh, and they were all dead by May, we, by, by, in April we could still find them, by mid-May they were gone. Um, and I think what's happening is if you look at soil temperature profile, particularly on the black field, those soils go up to 50, 60 degrees uh, or temperature at that, that one centimeter mark. And most seeds pack it in at about 40, 45 degrees. So I think uh, because canola is an oil seed, oils aren't stable at high, high temperature, we actually cause the seed dies in that, in that situation. I don't think it goes into dormancy. I think it just outright dies because of those conditions, if it doesn't get a chance to germinate right away. Do you think that would be a factor this, this spring then with, with stand establishment issues where you've got a dry, very dry seed bed, you've got spotty emergence? Yeah. Um, it could be a factor of just not enough moisture to emerge in that quiescent state or maybe they just imbibed a little bit and then and then possibly died. Yeah, I, I would I would argue it's probably one of those or both both of those scenarios would be would be real. But yeah, I, I, I would argue, I would expect that in this in this in these dry conditions, particularly if you don't get a rain within the first two or three weeks after planting, a lot of those seeds will probably no longer be viable. And uh, they either you know tried to germinate with a little bit of moisture they had if they were planted in the moisture. If they were never planted in the moisture, they could sit there for quite a while. But yeah, it's a uh, so, so this brings up a topic that I've had over the years is that we want to improve emergence, but we don't know really why we're only getting 60%. What happened to those 40%? And so Rob's just explaining some possibilities, but unless you know, how are we going to design experiments to overcome the poor emergence until we know what's going, what's happening to those ones that don't come up, right? And, which is very difficult, short of exhuming every seed, you know, in a period of time during emergence to figure out what's going on. But to really get the right answer, we have to figure out what happened to the 40% the that don't come up. And I don't see any research going forward that's going to really ultimately answer that. Agreed. Yeah, you're right. Darren, I want to come back to the, the, the density of your stand and uh, to Rob's point, some of the uh, pest management issues that may arise because of that. So what's, what's in your fields, what's the weed uh, competition situation like? Um, are, you, are you pretty on top of uh, in, any insect stress? Are you, how closely do you have to watch that field all season long to make sure those, that small number of plants make it to harvest? Uh, I would say we probably about 15% of my fields I sprayed uh, an insecticide on this spring just to uh, have some flea beetles 
and stuff like that. So yeah, you <laughs> if you're seeding low rates, you gotta you gotta have a guy walking out there and and uh, but then then the rest I thought I had to spray it all and then I just found out no it was fine it was it was the earlier seeded canola. I think everybody kind of seen that this year. The early stuff was just sitting there, and it, it was I can't blame it on the planter. I think it was just more the weather was not it was dry and the canola emerged and it was sitting there and the the seed treatment wore off and then the flea beetles had a heyday right and and that made me really worried <laughs> and then i'm like well i should have had five pounds but but the guys that did five pounds they had lots of flea beetles too but they had a little bit more depends if it's patch loss or not yeah it, it, you, and you'll see that like in patches and stuff like that but what about weeds uh weeds like uh, normally, like in the beginning when I started with planter, I use edge and fort fortress in the fall. On and uh, lately, I've not been doing that. I've been just going back to just roundup in the in the spring and and then uh, one or two passes in crop. Uh, this year, I thought I got away with just doing roundup and with the liberty, and uh, I just went out there and I saw yeah I got to do the second pass of liberty. The canola, the Roundup Bakers, I just did the 10 days after emergence, and uh, I didn't do Roundup before, before seeding, and then uh, I did a second pass, and, and that, so I was done the Roundup fields in two passes this year, and, and the Liberty would be three passes, because I, I tried to, it was also rented acres that I picked up this year that were pretty dirty, so. So as long as the, the products are working, uh, the wheat competition is is not a factor. Well, like you're having when you have wider row spacing, if it's dry, you're you're laughing. When you get a rainfall like this, and and it doesn't matter whose canola field you drive by right now, like there's a lot of guys that thought they were getting away with one pass, and they're out there now, right? Because uh, when it rained, then everything's growing, right? So I want to close uh, with the about and Darren, you talked about the seed weight, the 4.1. Yeah. Um, so if you've, you've got a range of seed weights, how do you, the question is, which is from the station uh, here at Canola Blues is, how do I deal with very low or very high thousand seed weight? Murray, do you want to lead off that one? Yeah, well, certainly, you know, um, there is a pretty big difference in size. Um, and although a larger seed will have a little bit better emergence rate than a small seed, the difference, say it's five to 10%, you know, some, from something that's four versus six, but the difference in size is 50%. So don't worry about that small difference in emergence because the difference in size is, and the number of seeds is the really component. And that's why you need that calculator going, well, you know, I didn't expect to get this big of a seed, so I should make some adjustments, you know, et cetera. Um, so it, it is very important. Now, the interesting thing with, with the Invigor going over to the seeds per bag and not, you know, now it's going to be you're buying so many seeds and that's going to take that out of the equation that um, you're going to buy a certain a bag and it's going to have at the seeding rate you know, so many pounds, right? So um, that's going to take some of that uncertainty out. And the other crops like corn and soybeans, they've been doing this for 20 years, right? You know, so... The, the, when you get a, a very expensive seed, it drives it down to the cost per seed. So, Murray, would you expect that all the canola seed companies would be selling on the same basis within, say, three, five years? Well, I, I think they'll probably watch to see how 
you know the Invigor platform is adopted and you know how it's viewed by farmers but yeah I, I think it's a good bet if if seed cost is very high it's going to come down to that um i found this year like so now i i seeded 1.2 pounds but i found the smaller seed with with the vacuum planter i had uh, like worse emergence like than when i was using the five and plus so i i think if they are going to sell per seed they better be giving us seed that's that's over five grams per thousand because the I, I noticed with the planter, like the emergence was less on the on the smaller seed. You definitely seen that. And even though I thought, oh yeah, I'm saving saving money, but I should have probably upped my seeding rate when you're under five pounds because or five grams per thousand. I mean, because uh, like you said, ten percent with the planter, you're gonna see that ten percent because like I, I noticed it this year. You also have the impact if you have small seed, you have. Um, ends up having small cotyledons, and then if your um, seed treatments for flea beetle is marginal, you actually have worse damage. And so the larger seeds will tolerate more flea beetle feeding. And actually, we know with biomass early season, the large seed has that weed control I suppression think, yeah. effect. I think it goes. It, it goes. It goes. It goes further than that. I think it goes yeah. all the way through the end of the season. Yeah. And uh, and I, I would agree. If we're going to start playing the soybean and corn game, then then large seed is where it's at. There's enough evidence out. There that large seeds perform better across the board. They will compete better with weeds. Um, what I see happening though, as we're starting to move with canola closer to that corn and soybean system, is and it is driven very much by economics. Is is where uh, what I what I'm concerned about is that we're trying to we're, we're starting to drive the plant densities down to where we're starting to require multiple in-crop herbicide applications. And that has been the driving factor for herbicide resistance in corn and soybean, is the fact that they're, they're not very competitive. We've been very lucky on that with the canola systems. You know, they've been around as long as, they, as the so corn and soybean systems have, but we haven't selected nearly the herbicide resistant weeds in our canola system than they have in those others. I think in, from my perspective, a large part of that is because of what canola is as a plant and how it can compete but also how we were growing it. And so I, 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 I am a bit concerned that we, we might be pushing, and it's, it's driven by economics, but we might be pushing very much towards selecting for more resistance to Roundup and Liberty and any of those herbicides if we push that all too far. Um, and so yeah, that's a word of caution there that, uh, that, uh, that we just should pick up from other jurisdictions. So we're, so we're pushing to the end of our time. So I just want to make sure I have one last thought for each of you, just kind of the, the key take home when it comes to stand establishment from a farmer's perspective. Uh, what, what, what would be the key message that each of you would have with regard to success in canola stand establishment? Rob, you want to start? Excellent, great. Um, <laughs> um, I would say no matter how you, uh, how you establish your stand, Aim for an even uniform stand that closes uh, up very, very quickly. I mean, that's, I think that's the key goal to production, not only on the weed and pest side, but also on the outright yield side. The more sunlight your stand traps, and doesn't matter what the crop is in Western Canada, the higher your yields are probably going to be. And so aim for that, and, and if you do that with a planter, that's great. If you do it with a drill, that's also great. But that should be the goal ultimately, no matter what technology we use. Yeah, my advice would be um, have a good historical record of what your emergence actually is. How many plant per, plants per square foot? Uh, you know, I often will get asked, 
you know, should I be seeding heavier or, or not? And, you know, and they'll tell me how, many, how much fertilizer they put in the seed row or their spacing and everything like that. And I said, well, how many plants do you get? And they, don't, they can't tell me. Well, how am I supposed to help them if they don't know if they're under four or 60% of the farms from the weed survey are under four? And I have a little bit, I said, well, you maybe should have that concern. But a lot of guys couldn't tell me a really good average for different fields, different, you know, sand or, or loam types, et cetera. And I think that's a deficiency that's hard to overcome when you start thinking about fine-tuning management. Um, my advice is uh, do what you know. Like any machine can make a guy look bad or, or good. Like... That's that's what I've learned. Like some guys, they, they go out there with those box drills, and and they put me to shame. Like, and there's guys out there with five thousands that put me to shame. There's guy, but there's guys with expensive million dollar drills, and and they they look like fools, right? So, it's totally you can make a machine good or bad by spending time, and and that's I think that was a mistake I made this year. Is I was like I didn't care. I, I thought I had it all figured out, and I just let the guys go out there. I didn't even look at the planters, and, and I got rows missing, and I got, like, lots of stuff going on just because I didn't take the time. And so take time, know your machine, like, spend, like, that's, that's, that's important to just make sure you got everything. Like, you can make any machine look nice. Right on. Great. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Darren, Murray, Rob. Thanks to Sean Haney with realagriculture.com for recording and being my backup. For lots more, go to canolawatch.org or canolaencyclopedia.ca and look under the plant establishment sections. This has been a Canola Watch podcast. I'm Jay Wetter. Thanks for listening.